Bob, I'm borrowing your stool again. <clears throat> There's two parts to this message. One is a head part to help you in your own interpretation and reading of this, of this word, this bit of the word. It's kind of a theoretical expose, and there are six, six things that I want you to note. Uh, the other is a heart part, and I'll just sit down for the heart because uh, I like that better. Before I begin today, let me, let me just say a couple of things. As is our custom here, if God lays a prayer need on your heart during this message, uh, I or any one of the elders would be glad to meet you over here and pray with you as to your individual need, whether it be a commitment to follow Christ for the first time or some impediment to your following Christ, uh, we would just be glad to join with you in an individual need. So if God leads, we'll be here after the service. Secondly, I want to have a little, just one minute of follow-up to last Sunday's sermon. It's so great to have people who think things through and then ask questions afterwards. I realized by the questions that those of you who were la here last week and heard the analogy of the nail on the door and then me to say that Satan could have, if, if you hold that one thing out from God, that Satan can have you back at any time, some of you might have thought that you can lose your salvation. That's what I was talking about. And it came through the faulty analogy of selling back the house. Satan cannot take ownership back of you. He can take dominance in your life. Salvation is not something you can lose, like a loaf of bread. But salvation is something you can be distracted from. Your walk from God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is something you can be distracted from. So I wasn't talking about losing your salvation, but I was talking about Satan taking dominance in your life. Okay? Keep asking those questions. That, that shows you're thinking. That's great. Let me begin by sharing with you the theory of where this portion of Peter's letter is coming from. First of all, I want you to note that God is a God of order and that authority is unmistakably a part of God's plan for this world. And our obedience to authority is unmistakably required of Christians. That is in the first verse we read. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So authority is something that God uses to order His world. The second thing that is presumed in this letter is that in this world there will be unjust authority. There will be harsh and mistaken people in authority. Not there might be, there will be. If you read verses 18 and verses 20, it says, Submit yourselves to masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You don't even have to wait for reason. It says unreasonable, and it presumes they're going to be there. Now, at this time, I want you to know that there are 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So he's not talking just a small portion of people. Submit yourselves to those masters. And then in verse 20, it says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If, when. See, he doesn't say if. He says if, when. He knows you're going to suffer. 
under unjust authority. And there is not a person, I, I would venture to say, probably in this room that has not had someone in authority over them that they considered unjust, unreasonable, and harsh. Okay? And then they went to God and they said, God, is this right? Well, the Scripture says, yes, there is a purpose in that, and that you are to be obedient unless... And this would tell, this, this also is, unless it is blatantly immoral for you to do so, no one should be able to command you anything that is against God's will, but if it's just unreasonable, or if you are just suffering because you are under a human that is not a Christian or is a Christian, and therefore it's even a bigger surprise that he's unreasonable, you are, as long as you are under that authority, to submit to that authority because God will work something out in your life because you have done that. Okay. Third, to choose when you are going to be obedient to authority and when you are not going to be obedient to authority is not the option of a Christian. As long as you are under authority, you must be obedient. Now, if you change relationships and you are no longer under that authority, then you, don't, you have a choice. But you see where this is coming from? If we could choose what we would listen to and what we would not from men, wouldn't pretty soon we would choose what we could listen to and what we would not from God? We can't start down that path. If you are under a human authority, you are to be obedient and you are to be submissive. This is not pleasant, but this is the Word of God. Fourth, that you will be judged righteously. Now, can I help you define the word righteously? If you trace that word through its use in Scripture, you will find that righteousness has not to do so much with goodness. When they want to use the term goodness, they use the term goodness. Righteousness had to, has to do with fulfilling the demands of a relationship. And you will be judged on how well you fulfilled the demands of the relationships you were in. Now let me give you an example of that. If you're standing out and your wife's had a hard day and she's washing the dishes and sticking them in the thing to dry and you're standing there reading scripture and you're quoting scripture to her, you are being good, but you are not being righteous. You are not fulfilling that relationship. You are not being a righteous husband. A righteous husband would dry those dishes and put them away. You will be judged not according to your goodness, but you will be judged according to your righteousness. How well did you do in the relationships? What was expected of you? Did you fulfill what was needed in that relationship? Okay? So he entrusts himself to the one who judges righteously. And that is verse 23. And then let's back up. I want to tell you something about Christ's example. The fascinating thing here is that not only does God require it of us, but Christ required it of himself. Who faced a harsher judgment than Christ? Who faced someone more unreasonable than Christ did? Or an unjust thing? We live in this world and Christ lived in this world. And he suffered the same things. And then the Bible says, and he gave us an example. Now I want you to note that word. The Greek word is hupergramos, and it means, now listen, this is fascinating to me, children in school would learn by taking a hoopergramos, that is a, an outline sketch. And how they learned their letters or their drawings or whatever was to fill in that sketch. 
And as they filled it in and traced what had been sketched for them, they not only learned it, but the sketch became more clear. Now look, when the Bible tells us that we are to follow in His steps after His example, what the Bible is saying to us is that surrounding this world is a sketch of Jesus Christ. And it is up to us, the learners, to fill it in with our own experience. And as we walk in His steps, as we fill in that sketch, not only do we learn about what it is to follow Christ, but the image becomes more clear for non-believers. So God tells us that that is a part of submission, part of staying in the lines that He has drawn. And no matter whether or not we can see how God's going to work that, He's going to work it. One more for the theoretical head folks, and then something for the heart folks. This scripture presumes that instead of putting ourselves above authority, we can look beyond whatever authority we are under to God, and we can perform as unto the Lord. Now let me give a couple extra scriptures. One of these days I'll get energetic and put an outline sheet back there and you'll be able to fill it in. But until that time, you might want to write these down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And it says, Whatever you do, do unto the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And it says... Whatever you do, do as unto the name of Jesus Christ. Now look, the person that you are working for as a Christian is not your immediate supervisor. You've got to shift your attention from him or from her and put it on God because that's who we work for as Christians every day. And however we work, we need to work as unto the Lord. And therefore... When somebody demands something of us unreasonable, we go ahead and fulfill it in a way that will do God credit. You see how the priorities are in here? He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. You do not need to fear the authority over you. You need that absolute awe and total respect to Almighty God. But you honor the people who are over you as God honors them. Now this was no small order for Peter because the king at the time Peter wrote this was Nero. You remember what Nero did to Christians? Stuck him out on stakes and burned them to surround his garden with light? Had their skin stripped off? You think you got it tough? You think you got an unreasonable boss? Listen, folks, he's saying we've got to honor Nero. Okay, there's no mercy there, is there? <laughs> yeah, it's a hard demand. But somehow God is going to work his purpose out of that if we keep our attention on him and not on the authority directly over us. If we can honor and treat that authority with respect, but work as unto God. Now that's what you need to read this over and to interpret it in its proper context theoretically. Now let's go to the applicatory process, okay? Let's go to the heart stuff. 
You can say, man, that is a good theory, Joel. I really agree with that. But you haven't got my boss. And no, I don't. I don't have your boss. But let me just tell you a few practical things that are going to help you. Let me say them in a different way. I've already said them. First of all, do not focus your attention or give as your main goal the justification of yourself to your immediate authority, in whatever authority that is. You cannot prove to that person what you want to prove to that person, and that's what most of us do. You know, in this culture, we have gotten all mixed up. We have come to believe that freedom is a matter of getting our rights. If we have our rights, if other people recognize that we have certain rights too, then we're going to be free. Let me tell you something. That is a dead-end trap. You can never get enough of your rights. Freedom is not a matter of rights. It's a matter of right. When you do right, you are free. Read in verse 15. Do right. And you know what it says in verse 16? Act as free men. When you do right, what, what God wants you to do, you will be free no matter what your direct authorities think of you. I visited for two and a half years with a convicted murderer when I was in the old country at Pendleton Prison. He had become a Christian. He had been in there since he was 14 and a half years old. He murdered somebody when he was 14 and a half years old. He was 32 years old. And when he, was, when he was 30 years old, he knelt down and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And his character was totally changed. He did not have any Christian relationships in the institution. He was in maximum security. He started writing churches all over the city to come and visit him, to give him Christian fellowship. So I went up there and we had a relationship for two years. And you know what I saw about that person? For 15 years... That person had spent that time, all of his time in that institution trying to get his rights, trying to argue his legal case, trying to, trying to make the, 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 the guards and the warden see him as a good guy, and he was frustrated and he was angry. But you know what happened when he accepted Christ? All of that went away. And what they thought of him didn't matter so much to him anymore. It what was God thought of him that mattered to him. And on that day, he became a free man because no one could keep him prisoner anymore. He was no longer captive in his heart. Now, he is still there, and I'm going through a process this fall asking the governor to grant, grant him clemency. And so we are not, not uh, ceasing our attempt to get him out from underneath those authorities. But as long as he is underneath those authorities, they cannot imprison him. He has not been in prison one day since he's accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It's a matter of the heart. You cannot try to justify yourselves to the people who have authority over you. You will go around and around and around and be continually frustrated. Secondly, you cannot get justification from your emotions. You will never have a peace from your emotions. A lot of people start a resentment and an anger in their emotions, and then they're held captive, not by the authority, but by their own emotions. Let me tell you a funny story. It's getting kind of heavy, and you're all kind of sitting there, loaded down in your pew. Let me relax you. This is just a story about how our emotions can just take us over. And those of you who have been offended, 
in, in, in that verse it says he knows just what's on their heart. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he was threatened, he did not threaten. He knows just what's going on in these Christians' hearts. They're starting to revile, and they're starting to get angry, and starting to see. And he knows how, how that human emotion can take, take a person over. Pretty soon you're paying more, paying more attention to your emotion than what somebody's actually doing. I came from a little town, Shelby, Ohio, that had one theater. And from, for those of you who come from a little town that has a theater, you know that was kind of the focal point of the town. The guy who ran it wore brushes on his shoulders and everything. I mean, he was really into this. Called the Castamba Theater. Yes, yes, sir. And every year at Halloween time, they would have scary movies. Come to this movie, you're going to die. If you come to this movie, somebody's going to suck out your brains and leave you dead on the floor with all kinds of black jujubes all over your back. And they'll sweep you out with the trash, you know? And, you know, we get those things, you know, and we'd, and we'd say, oh, they, you know, with our head, we'd say, oh, they can't do that. Oh, that that's not good. So that's what we said in our heads. In our hearts, we said, I'm going to die <laughs> if I go to the movie. But see, you couldn't not go to the movie because all of your friends would say, are you scared? And you say, oh, I'm sure I'm scared of this movie. <laughs> really? And then, you, and then you were trapped into going. One year, listen to this, this is awful. They had the scariest movie in the entire world. It was a gorilla movie. And they put that advertisement in the paper and everybody went, oh, I'm not scared, I'm not scared. <laughs> but some idiot, listen, some idiot started the rumor around Shelby, Ohio. And believe me, when you start a rumor around Shelby, Ohio, it went around three, four times to everybody. Somebody started the rumor that in the middle of this horrible gorilla movie, Somebody, some maniac, was going to let loose a live gorilla in the theater. Now, we looked at each other and said, I'm sure they're going to let loose a live gorilla. I mean, <laughs> we can sue them if they let loose a live gorilla. Nobody would do that. That's what we were saying with our mouths and with our heads. With our hearts, we were saying, I know some maniac's going to do that. And out of 500 people, that gorilla is going to come right to me and rip me to shreds in front of my friends. I knew. Well, you still couldn't back out. You still couldn't back out. So I asked a bunch of people to go. Remember Red Bricker, the neighborhood Billy? I asked him to go with me. I did, because I knew if a gorilla came, Red would eat him. <laughs> he was that tough. He was that tough. And, and Denny Kurtzman and Denny Adams and a whole bunch of us went and Eddie Teach. Now, let me tell you about Eddie Teach. Red was a bully, but he was just a first-degree bully. Like, he'd, he'd hit you till you swell up a little bit, and then he'd pat you on the back and call you a good sport. He wasn't so bad. Eddie Teach was a sadist. I mean, this guy, remember Peter Lorre? Eddie Teach looked like Peter Lorre and talked like him. Eddie Teach would pull little things off insects and then just watch, see how they got along without him. Oh, he was, oh, third degree. We're talking third degree sadist here. Well, Eddie was going along with us. And we're all walking down to the theater. And on the way down, we notice something bulging from Eddie Teach's pockets. And we say, Eddie, what you got in your pockets? And he said, I got a thing in my pockets, man. We'd say, okay, Eddie, okay. Go get him a while, because we knew he'd do mean stuff to us if he got real mock. So we get in the movie. And in front of us is a whole row of girls. Now, we're trying to figure out what a girl is doing in a movie like that. 
And then right in front of us is little Elsie. And little Elsie was a God-fearing, bless her heart. I never know how she got in that movie. Little Elsie never had a childhood. She was born with a bun on her head. I mean, <laughs> she, was so, she was so straight. And all those girls just sat there like this while the movie started. And it was horrible, terrible, scary. And in, now listen, in the scariest part of that movie, Eddie Teach pulled out fur gloves. <laughs> and he put them on, and I watched him reach forward to little Elsie and do this. <laughs> Friends, I want to tell you, you do not have to be an athlete or have perfect balance to sprint across the backs of theater chairs. <laughs> now, wh why did I tell you a silly story? Well, number one, because it's fun and I like fun, but the, the second reason is this. I want you to know that what little Elsie was responding to was not what was up on the screen. It was not even the gloves. If she had been watching Mary Poppins or if she had come to there and never got all those rumors and all that kind of stuff, she could have turned around and quoted scripture to Eddie or said, what are you doing, squirrel, or what? To at least 50 you start to get angry. And until what they do in your eyes are is four times worse than it would appear. Cannot focus your attention there. Doesn't say submit righteously. It's a continuum. You know, this whole scripture boils down. You see above what you feel. That's all. Believe that God. would glorify God. And I hear that a time and time again. Well, I just can't see anything in here. It glorifies God. Therefore, I'm not uh, at liberty or I don't have to carry through on it. Now, wait a minute. There's lots of times that God can do something that you see no glory and he's doing it in a leavening process and eventually he's going to work a purpose out of it. And when you get right down to it and you read this scripture, you have to ask yourself, are you going to place yourself back with the guardian and shepherd of your souls or aren't you? Are you going to trust God's power above the power of the authority or aren't you? Let me just take you back to the year 61 AD and I want to take you to the streets of Rome. And I want you to see as we stand on the streets of Rome two things. I want you to see this huge glorious Colosseum. It is absolutely magnificent, and it is filled with thousands of people. And then I want, to, want you to see on the other side of the street this dark, dingy, damp jailhouse. 
And I want you to look inside there with me, and I want you to see a little man who's writing a letter to some Christians. He started in a church at Ephesus. His name is Paul. And every once in a while, Paul will get up because his eyes hurt so bad, and he'll go over to the jailer, and he'll say, you know, I just want to tell you what Jesus Christ has meant to me. And the jailer will put him down. That one in authority will put him down and he'll say, Paul, I don't want to hear about it. You're always talking about that Jesus fella. I don't want to hear about it. You sit down. So Paul will go sit down and start writing again. Go back to the Colosseum with me. I want you to see all of the people there and all of them are watching the gladiatorial games and all of them are having a good time, but all of them are waiting for the entrance of one person. His name is Caesar. And their day will not be complete unless they get to pay allegiance to Caesar. Go back to the jailhouse with me. Paul tries one more time. He gets threatened again with another beating. He gets put down again, but he goes back to his seat with a little grin on his face, knowing that as long as he's in that jail, he's just going to speak the word of Christ. Go back to the Colosseum. Caesar walks in. And in one accord, everybody stands up, raises their right hand, and yells thunderously, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! Now, if I were to ask you in that picture, who was the victor and who the victim, what would you say? But Paul quietly honored God and thousands and thousands of years later, people are naming their children Paul and their dogs Caesar. Will you pray with me? God, you are God. No matter what storms we have inside, you are sovereign. No matter how much conflict we believe we face and how low we run on patience, you do not. You are God. And we ask you to link with us, to help us concentrate, to help us focus on your power, not on our own, but just help us not to take your place as judge. Help us to submit to your righteous judgment. And help us, Lord, to love you more every day and to be assured that you will work out in our lives, your plan, if we submit to those in authority over us. We pray this in the spirit of Christ who provided an example for us that we might walk in his steps. Amen.